Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, February 9th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. An investigative journalist claims America bombed the Nord Stream pipeline. Biden delivers his second State of the Union address. Zelensky visits the UK. UK MPs claim HSBC is complicit in China's alleged human rights abuses in Hong Kong. Amnesty says Thai children may face prison for protesting. Ex-Twitter executives testify over the handling of the Hunter Biden laptop story. Sri Lanka's president says the nation's economy may return to growth by the end of the year. Iran reveals an underground Air Force base. CVS strikes a deal to buy Oak Street Health. And the Super Bowl betting is projected to hit a record $16 billion. In our top story, a special report says the U.S. is responsible for bombing the Nord Stream pipeline. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Daily Mail, Seymour Hersh, Reuters, Teleser, and Washington Examiner. On Wednesday, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist Seymour Hersh published a report on his Substack claiming that the U.S. was responsible for bombing the Nord Stream pipelines in June 2022. Hersh cited a source allegedly with, quote, direct knowledge of the plot. Hersh claims that the U.S. deployed highly trained deep-water Navy divers to plant remotely triggered explosives used to destroy three of the four Nord Stream pipelines. Under the cover of a well-known NATO exercise called Baltops 22, the divers allegedly planted the explosives in June and detonated them three months later in September. Hirsch says that Biden deployed special Navy operatives, who reportedly trained in Panama City, to avoid reporting the operations to Congress, which he would have to do if America's Special Operations Command was used. In response to Hirsch's report, the White House called the journalist's claims, quote, utterly false and complete fiction. Spokespeople for the CIA and State Department also have denied the report's allegations. The report alleges that Biden's team sought to disrupt Vladimir Putin's income sources. The report further asserts that in December 2021, prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan helped plan the attack on the pipeline. Russia responded to the allegations, with Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova stating, quote, The White House must now comment on all these facts. Swedish and Danish authorities have also been separately investigating the attack. Eric, thank you for the facts on that surprising story. Here on the Improve the News podcast, we like to separate the facts from the narrative spin. Eric just laid out the facts for you. I'm going to take you through the beginning of our narrative spin, starting with an establishment-critical narrative provided by the Gateway Pundit. All the signs pointed to the U.S. being responsible for blowing up the Nord Stream pipelines. And now we have a report from an esteemed journalist that details exactly how the U.S. government plotted its attack. Biden said the Nord Stream 2 would be gone if Russia invaded Ukraine, and that was one of the only promises he kept. The pro-establishment narrative is coming from Newsweek. Seymour Hersh's blog post blaming the U.S. for destroying the Nord Stream pipelines is utterly false and not corroborated by any reputable media outlet. The U.S. and NATO have already declared that the pipeline's explosion was an act of sabotage, and reports implicating the U.S. are utterly fictitious. I think he's just trying to sell books. See more books. See more books. Oh, yeah, that's, you're right. 
Under the Bleachers. That was one of my favorites. What was that author's name again? Seymour Butts. Seymour Butts. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And then there was, what was it, uh, 30 Feet from the Outhouse by Willie Makett? Yes, yes. Another good. That was a classic. Was, was there one more? You know what? One of my other favorites was uh, The Yellow River by an author, a little known author named I.P. Freely. This <laughs> <laughs> this very, very esteemed news program is just narrated by a bunch of little kids. It's all we are. Yeah, we're just kids. We're just a bunch of little kids. I want more Kool-Aid. Max, bring us more Kool-Aid. <laughs> Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. President Biden delivers his second State of the Union address. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, CNBC, Washington Post, New York Times, and CBS. U.S. President Biden on Tuesday delivered his second State of the Union address. He called for unity in a divided Congress, where the House now has a Republican majority, and asked Congress to work with him to rebuild the economy and unite the country. Biden highlighted U.S. job growth, infrastructure, and drug price cuts for seniors, while also establishing the Democrats' position on higher taxes for billionaires and immigration reforms. He also discussed the Ukraine war, energy, and China. The representatives showed unity when Biden spoke about Ukraine, some waving small Ukrainian flags, and a bipartisan group applauded his condemnations of Russia. But that unity dissolved when Biden discussed domestic policy. When Biden stated that a small group of Republicans have threatened to cut Social Security and Medicare, several Republicans stood up and loudly denounced the president's claims. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Republican from Georgia, shouted that the president was a liar. The president responded to GOP objections by declaring, quote, We all apparently agree Social Security and Medicare are off the books now, right? They're not going to be touched? Democrats rose in applause. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. And as expected, some politically charged spins have emerged, beginning with the Democratic narrative coming from Vanity Fair. Given with vigor and verve, Biden's second State of the Union was meant to assure Americans who feel ignored that the government can work on their behalf. Of course, the president's urging for Democrats and Republicans to work together for the betterment of the country was quickly disrupted by some Republicans' unhinged response to his calls for bipartisanship. Most importantly, Biden made a strong and convincing case for a second term. And Democratic narratives are typically followed up by a Republican narrative. This one is written by the New York Post. Biden's speech was nothing but falsehoods, boast about his supposed accomplishments in legislation that has no chance of passing, and fake calls for bipartisanship. He conveniently glossed over China, crime, and the border crisis, issues he's been proven weak on. His negative approval rating shows that the American people haven't been fooled by Biden's claims of success, and they're not likely to be tricked by his rhetoric. Al Jazeera is giving us a narrative C for this story. Biden's speech was heavily focused on domestic accomplishments and plans, but short on foreign policy. It's dangerous to reduce foreign policy to an afterthought when the U.S. is facing challenges from Russia and China and heavily funding Ukraine's war with Russia. Biden, the Democrats, and the GOP alike owe the world a clearer, more cohesive vision 
for U.S. foreign policy. And every now and then we get a statistics-based nerd narrative provided by the folks over at the Metaculous Prediction Community. Here's one that says that there's a 74% chance that Biden will officially declare his re-election campaign by November 15th, 2023. The conflict in Ukraine continues as we look at day 350 as Zelensky visits the United Kingdom and discusses military assistance. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, DW, Al Jazeera, Ukraine Forum, Reuters, Guardian, and Newsweek. Ukrainian President Zelensky on Wednesday conducted his first visit to the UK since the beginning of the Russian invasion almost one year ago. He addressed British lawmakers and met with King Charles III during his visit and expressed gratitude for UK military assistance, including tanks and long-range missiles. The news comes amid an escalation of Ukrainian officials' public lobbying for Western fighter jets. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has confirmed that Britain will expand its support of Ukrainian soldiers to include providing training for NATO standard fighter jets. Sunak said the move, quote, underlines our commitment to not just provide military equipment for the short term, but a long-term pledge to stand shoulder to shoulder with Ukraine. Germany, Denmark, and the Netherlands have made similar pledges, saying they will provide at least 100 Leopard 1 tanks to the nation in the coming months. The update came as the German defense minister made a surprise visit to Kiev on Tuesday. Elsewhere, Switzerland is reportedly poised to break its centuries-long stance of neutrality. Public support for Ukraine among the Swiss population appears to be putting pressure on the government to end a ban currently restricting the export of Swiss weapons to war zones. Meanwhile, in Russia, Deputy Prime Minister Alexander Novak has said that the EU's decision to introduce exemptions to its price cap on oil revealed that Russian fuel was still in demand. Russian state news agency TASS published Novak's comments on Wednesday, saying, quote, This once again emphasizes that our oil products are in demand in Europe. In other news, the appointment of former Ukrainian National Police Chief Ihor Klimenko as Interior Affairs Minister has been ratified by Ukraine's parliament. His predecessor, Denis Monastirsky, was one of six high-ranking officials killed in a helicopter crash last month. Both the U.S. and Russia are sending emergency personnel to support the catastrophic Turkey-Syria earthquake. And it is possible that U.S. and Russian teams will encounter each other on the ground as they work to provide urgent humanitarian support. Ukraine has also pledged to send a team of 87 rescue personnel from their state emergency services to support Turkey. Eric, thank you for the facts and the update on Ukraine. We've got a pro-establishment narrative provided by The Atlantic. Making sure Ukraine continues to be well-armed is the only way to fend off Putin and Russia in this unprovoked war of aggression. The U.S. and NATO must not simply offer up their latest and most high-tech weapons, however. Combat is about supply lines, and the West must ensure basic equipment and ammunition are kept flowing as needed. There's an establishment critical narrative courtesy of anti-war. Multi-billion dollar weapons packages will make little difference in the outcome of the war. The U.S. has been meddling in Ukraine since the end of the Cold War. And what we're witnessing is a geopolitical Ponzi scheme to benefit those aligned with the multi-industrial complex. War is a lucrative racket. And the folks at Metaculus have another nerd narrative that says there's a 5% chance that Ukraine will receive a security guarantee from another country before 2024. 
You know, in the in the final fact of this story, Adam, it says that uh, Ukraine has also pledged to send a team of 87 rescue personnel from their state emergency services to support that tragedy, uh, that earthquake in Turkey. That's amazing. As if Ukraine didn't have enough to worry about themselves, they they can still spare enough for humanitarian aid. Just kind of tells you a little bit more about where Ukraine's heart is. According to UK members of parliament, HSBC is complicit in violating rights of Hong Kong expatriates. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Reuters, Bloomberg, Yahoo, and The Telegraph. A probe by UK peers and members of parliament has concluded that HSBC is complicit in alleged human rights abuses by complying with China's directive to prevent overseas citizens of Hong Kong from withdrawing pension contributions from the city's mandatory Provident Fund. Wednesday's report accused HSBC of being motivated by a desire to protect profits and remain in favor with China's government when it imposed the measures on citizens of Hong Kong who had traveled to Britain following Beijing's alleged anti-democracy crackdown. The National Security Law, or the NSL, passed by China in 2020, criminalized dissent, protest, and disobedience in the city. It imposed extended prison terms for those found guilty of colluding with foreign powers or breaking away from the nation, leaving those who accepted a British invitation to relocate to the UK particularly susceptible. Despite the resolution from the cross-party group, HSBC said it had merely been obeying the law. Like all banks, it said, we have to obey the law and the instructions of the regulators in every territory in which we operate. However, Alistair Carmichael, co-chair of the group and member of the Liberal Democrats, claimed that the genuine hardship caused by denying people their savings meant that HSBC had gone beyond just interpretation of the law to violation of fundamental rights. Over 88,000 people have relocated to the UK from Hong Kong since 2021 under the British National Overseas, or BNO, visa scheme. Those were the facts. We've got a couple of spins that have emerged. A pro-China narrative is the first one coming from Global Times. Despite a consistent sour grape mentality among some Western media and observers, Hong Kong has managed to attract endorsement from global financial leaders including representatives of Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and Blackstone. Investment from the industry has shown clear confidence in one country, two systems governance of Hong Kong. Any deviation from laws in Hong Kong, such as NSL, would undermine the success of this global financial hub. And that's followed up with an anti-China narrative provided by Independent. As businesses worldwide rapidly shift to put ethics and sustainability at the heart of corporate processes, HSBC needs to reassess its own principles. Despite global condemnation of Beijing's brutal crackdown, HSBC defended its draconian legislation on the world stage, putting domestic law in Hong Kong above global international human rights law begging the question of whether it values profit over the defense of democracy and human rights. And the nerds from Intaculous Prediction Community are chiming in with their narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that Hong Kong will stop being a special administrative region of China by November of the year 2044. In our next story, Amnesty International says that Thai children may face prison after protests. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Amnesty International, Bangkok Post, Al Jazeera, 
and Manila Standard. Human rights NGO Amnesty International on Wednesday reported that almost 300 children in Thailand have faced criminal charges, including sedition for their role in the 2020 pro-democracy protests that called for political reforms to Thailand's monarchy. Over 200 criminal charges are still active, with 17 minors reportedly facing up to 15 years in prison per charge for violating laws that make defaming, insulting, or threatening members of the royal family a crime. Amnesty's regional researcher Chanatip Tatiyaka Runwang said that the arrests, many of which relate to the 2020-2021 protest movement, were conducted as a reaction to government policies under COVID emergency decrees between March 2020 and October 2022. The report alleges that Thai authorities have arrested, prosecuted, surveilled, and intimidated hundreds of minors, reportedly using cable ties to restrain a 12-year-old during a protest crackdown in July 2021 and stalking a 13-year-old activist since March 2022. According to the minors, police not only followed and intimidated them, but pressured their teachers and parents to discourage them from protesting, leading some to be disowned or abused by their own parents. Amnesty also highlighted an alleged pattern of discrimination against LGBTQ plus youth and ethnic minority children. But the Thai Ministry of Justice claimed that freedom of expression and assembly is guaranteed by the 2017 Constitution. Eric, thank you for the facts of that shocking story. We have a pro-establishment narrative provided by HRW. Thailand's history of authoritarianism and human rights violations extends far past the 2020 protests, but these arrests of and criminal charges against children are a new low. As the long arm of the Thai monarchy, in coordination with the prime minister, continues its crackdown on speech, both in the streets and online, it's up to the global community to step up and call for drastic political change. And the establishment critical narrative is coming from New Eastern Outlook. As is the case in Myanmar, the Philippines, and throughout the East, U.S.-funded media outlets are drawing previously non-existent divisions between segments of sovereign nations. First, they pitted Buddhists against Muslims, and now they're pitting so-called pro-democracy children against their parents and government. Reports like this aren't trying to bring out democracy, but are creating conflict so that the U.S. can eventually intervene militarily and continue its long history of colonizing the region. You know, Eric, as much as we complain and uh, talk about bad things happening in our country, it's stories like this that really make you appreciate what we do have here. Although I do at times wish that I could lock up my own kids. <laughs> Former Twitter executives testify over the handling of the Biden laptop story. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, ABC News, CNN, New York Post, and Fox News. Three former Twitter executives testified before the House Oversight Committee on Wednesday regarding the platform's temporary suppression of a New York Post story involving then-candidate Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, in the weeks before the 2020 presidential election. House Oversight Chairman Representative James Cormer, the Republican from Kentucky, said the hearing was the first step in examining the coordination between the federal government and big tech to restrict protected speech and interfere in the democratic process. Comer subpoenaed Twitter's former chief legal advisor, Vijaya Gatti, former Deputy General Counsel James Baker, and former head of trust and safety, Yoel Roth. 
the executives admitted to restricting access to the Post story on Hunter Biden's laptop, with Roth saying Twitter made a mistake, and Gaddy adding that the platform was using caution to prevent potentially hacked materials from being posted. Republicans long criticized Twitter's handling of the laptop story, but the interest, when new CEO Elon Musk released internal documents in the Twitter files, appearing to show debate among employees over censoring the story, which led to accusations that the company helped President Biden. According to the Twitter files, the social media company received payments from the FBI and communicated with other intelligence agencies. Despite GOP claims that Twitter colluded with the federal government, Baker insisted that there was no unlawful collusion. Adam, thank you for the facts. Two spins emerging from this story, beginning with a Republican narrative coming from Town Hall. Now that former Twitter executives are testifying under oath, they are finally admitting to their complicity in suppressing a story about Hunter Biden. While the mainstream media has tried to question the legitimacy of the Post's story and Elon Musk's Twitter files, it's now clear that Twitter, under previous leadership, engaged in politically motivated censorship and must be held accountable. And CNN is providing us with a democratic narrative. In an attempt to navigate a hyper-augmented climate of disinformation, Twitter's former leaders admittedly made mistakes in their handling of the Hunter Biden story. However, Republicans' desperate attempt to spin Elon Musk's Twitter files into a smoking gun of collusion between Twitter and Biden has fallen painfully flat. This hearing is nothing but an illegitimate performance. Would that be the same as a witch hunt? I believe so. So the Republicans call it, eh, it's a witch hunt. And yep. the Democrats, eh, it's an illegitimate performance. Performance. Excuse me, this is not a witch hunt. This is an illegitimate performance. Oh, semantics. Semantics. Illegitimate. <laughs> <laughs> President Wickramasinghe says Sri Lanka may return to growth by year end. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Bloomberg, Economy Next, CNA, and Associated Press. Sri Lanka's President Ranil Wickremesinghe told Parliament on Wednesday that he expects the country's economy to grow again by the end of the year and that the government aims to exit bankruptcy by 2026. His speech came after hundreds of public workers stepped out of government buildings to protest. The introduction of a new income tax in January, ranging from 12.5% to over 36%, as the country attempts to boost government revenue from 8.3% of GDP to 11.3% in 2023 in order to access international monetary fund resources. Wickramasinghe claimed difficult measures are the only way to salvage Sri Lanka's economy, as the country has reportedly reached the final stage of negotiations with the IMF to secure a $2.9 billion loan program. Sri Lanka's GDP shrunk 8% last year amid its worst currency crisis ever as the rupee collapsed and year-on-year -year inflation reached 70%. Implemented measures are believed by some to be having a positive impact on the country's economy. Meanwhile, the Paris Club stated on Tuesday that its members have agreed to provide financing assurances to support the IMF's extended fund facility for Sri Lanka highlighting efforts to restructure the country's debt as soon as possible. Crisis hit Sri Lanka has suspended the repayment of almost $7 billion in foreign debt due this year, pending the outcome of talks with the IMF. The country's total foreign debt exceeds $51 billion, of which $28 billion must be repaid within four years. 
Thank you, Eric. Bloomberg has provided us with an anti-China narrative for this story. Despite Western creditors to Sri Lanka being fully committed to the debt restructuring process, the international effort to rescue the island nation could be delayed or complicated, as China, whose lending accounted for about one-fifth of Sri Lanka's public debt last year, remains unilateral in its decision not to join them. Beijing's attitude will ensure the island nation remains trapped in unsustainable amounts of debt. Global Times gives us a pro-China narrative. China's share in Sri Lanka's external public debt is less than 10%, and Beijing has provided an extension on the debt service due in 2022 and 2023. Nevertheless, the West continues to use China as an excuse to evade its primary responsibility in reducing the debt burden for the developing world, trying to force Beijing to accept Western rules, political demands, and conditions on debt relief. And you thought your credit card debt was out of control. Yeah, I still owe money on my Columbia Records account. <laughs> 11 CDs for a penny. That's a, can't beat that deal. Iran reveals an underground Air Force base. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Iran International, Al Jazeera, Eurasian Times, The Times of Israel, and Haaretz. Iran's official IRNA news agency reported on Tuesday that the country has unveiled an underground Air Force facility, dubbed Eagle 44, purportedly the first of its kind large enough to house fighter jets. The underground complex is serving as one of the country's major Air Force facilities and is said to be capable of storing and operating several aircraft, including long-range cruise missile fighters and bombers, as well as military drones. The airbase is allegedly located at an undisclosed site in mountainous terrain to protect it from possible attacks by U.S. bombers. Tehran also unveiled a homegrown, long-range, air-launched cruise missile called ASEF, which will reportedly be installed in Iran's Russian-made Su-24 jets. Eagle 24 is one of several Iranian Air Force underground bases that have been recently constructed throughout Iran to perform surprise aerial operations. Last year, Tehran disclosed the underground Drone Base 313. The unveiling of the new Iranian airbase comes just days after the conclusion of the largest ever joint U.S.-Israel military exercise, dubbed Juniper Oak 2023 which was widely considered a message to Tehran. Last week, Tehran vowed revenge for an alleged Israeli drone strike on a military factory near the central city of Isfahan. The attack came amid tensions over Tehran's nuclear activities and its suspected arms shipments in support of Russia's war effort in Ukraine. Those were the facts, and here are the spins. The anti-Iran narrative is courtesy of The Guardian. The fact that the Mullah regime is now disclosing Eagle 44 underscores the danger it poses to Israel as well as to the West. Add this to the brutal crackdown on protests for women's rights and Tehran's support of Moscow for its Ukraine war, and it becomes clear that the previous policy of indifference and appeasement has failed. The risk of open confrontation with the theocratic dictatorship is increasing. A fundamental rethink is needed before it's too late. And there's a pro-Iran narrative spin provided by Press TV. The underground base impressively underlines that Tehran will not give in to the West or Israel. As a sovereign country in a strategically important region, Tehran is a thorn in Washington's side. 
but its efforts to overthrow the government will be met by the unity of the Iranian people. Moreover, the strength and innovation of the Iranian military will help ensure that Iran will never again allow itself to be controlled and plundered as in the days of the Shah regime. There is a nerd narrative saying that there's a 47% chance that Iran will obtain a nuclear weapon by 2030, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. I don't know what everyone's so worried about, Eric, an underground Air Force base. I mean, they, they just can only fly in their little dome. I would imagine it's a pretty big dome, right? As long as we don't go down in the dome of their underground Air Force base, we should be fine, right? We should be, I should be absolutely fine. Absolutely. Now, if they get the planes outside of that, then then we might have some problems. Then there might be an issue. There might be an issue. But as long as they stay in their underground base, we'll be fine. <laughs> More Kool-Aid, Max. You boys have had enough Kool-Aid. In our next story, CVS plans to buy Oak Street Health. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and ProPublica. In its third largest deal in the last decade, CVS Health Corporation has agreed to buy Oak Street Health Incorporated and its primary care centers for $10.6 billion, or $39 a share, representing a roughly 73% premium to Oak Street's last closing price. Along with Oak Street's 169 clinics, the deal will add about 600 physicians and nurse practitioners to CVS's inventory. The primary care network is senior-focused and provides COVID vaccinations, strep tests, and other medical services that CVS currently provides through its pharmacies. CVS says it plans to increase the number of health centers, which are for lower- to middle-income people with Medicare Advantage plans, private versions of the federal government's program for people aged 65 and up, to 300 by 2026. In addition to its roughly 10,000 drugstores nationwide, CVS Health also covers millions of people with Medicare Advantage through its Aetna Health Insurance arm. Oak Street reported third-quarter 2022 revenue of $545.7 million, up 40% from a year earlier. However, it had a net loss of $130 million. CVS projects adjusted 2023 earnings per share in the range of $8.70 to $8.90, then around $9 in 2024 and $10 in 2025. This comes as CVS last year agreed to purchase home health care company Signify Health, an $8 billion deal that's currently pending regulatory approval. Competitors such as Amazon and Walgreens have made similar moves to acquire primary care companies. Thank you, Eric. ProPublic has provided us with an establishment critical narrative. Fewer competitors will lead to higher prices, and this economic reality hits hardest in the healthcare industry. Despite its aggressive rhetoric, the Federal Trade Commission, or the FTC, has done little to block the vast majority of primary care mergers, and the trend is only getting faster. The government needs to step in before every patient becomes just a data point on corporate investment charts. And a pro-establishment narrative is coming from RevCycle Intelligence. In opposition to recent fear-mongering, data shows healthcare mergers lead to lower costs and higher quality care. According to the American Hospital Association, hospital operating costs have dropped more than 2% throughout the recent primary care merger boom, a positive for administrators, doctors, and patients. And in our final story today, Super Bowl betting is projected to hit a record $16 billion. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CBS, Inquirer, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today. The American Gaming Association, or the AGA, on Tuesday projected that more than 50 million people, approximately one-fifth of the U.S. population, will place bets on Sunday's Super Bowl between the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs for a total of about $16 billion. This comes as data from an online survey on behalf of the AGA indicates that about 30 million adults will make wagers online at a retail sportsbook or with a bookie, and 28 million people will casually bet with friends on some type of pool or squares contest. As of Monday, the biggest known bet on the upcoming Super Bowl is a $1 million wager made on the Eagles' money line to win $800,000. Last year, Houston furniture magnate Jim Mattress Mac McInvale wagered $5 million on the underdog Cincinnati Bengals, who lost 23-20 to the Los Angeles Rams. The Eagles were a slight underdog when the Super Bowl lines first posted at sportsbooks across the country, but the tight odds have since flipped amid concerns over Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes' ankle injury. This will be the first Super Bowl played in a state with legalized sports gambling, and fans attending State Farm Stadium in Glendale, Arizona, will be able to place bets during the game. 33 U.S. states and Washington, D.C. have legalized and implemented betting since the Supreme Court annulled a 1992 federal law banning commercial sports gambling in 2018. Adam, thank you for the facts. And as we look at the narratives for this story, the first one coming from New York Times. It's disgraceful that sports governing bodies that long expressed opposition to gambling, such as the NFL, have jumped on the bandwagon of the multi-million dollar sports betting industry, while almost 7 million Americans struggle with gambling addiction. Casual betting may be fun in the moment, but sportsbooks are using Super Bowl week to get people hooked on their devastating product. And Fox Business has provided a narrative B. Sports betting has been a huge boost for fans who are now extra invested in the games they already love. NFL games in particular have been enhanced by legal gambling, especially with the exotic prop bets offered in relation to the Super Bowl. Most legalized betting operations have ways of setting limits to make sure gamblers can enjoy the thrill but also wager responsibly. And we have our final nerd narrative for today. It says that there's a 44% chance that the Eagles will win the Super Bowl, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. How many bets have you been placing on the Super Bowl, Eric? I haven't placed any bets on this Super Bowl. Really? Yeah, neither have I. But uh, what a- I've been playing a lot of uh, uh, Madden NFL with my kids, and every game I, I bet them one week of their, their allowance. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay, poor kids. No, they're into me for three months. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm bad at Madden. I'm really bad. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, February 9th, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Next time we need grape Kool-Aid. We do.